I was blindsided when I learned that this doctor that I was seeing, which by the way, at this point, I did know that it was a fraudulent organization. I was only blindsided because I I got caught. I didn't think I would get caught or in trouble. I thought if anyone's getting in trouble, it's the doctor, which is true. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, when I think about someone listening to this show, I imagine each guest reaching out of the phone to offer the listener something we all desperately need, the ability to believe that we are capable of accomplishing great things and creating a huge impact. And today's guest, Jason Coombs, has a profound story that I believe will do just that. Jason is the founder of Brickhouse Recovery, a faith-based addiction treatment center in Boise, Idaho. And Jason himself is living proof that this program works. After our car accident, Jason was offered his first Oxycontin, crushed up and in a line, and it came with an opportunity to get his own prescription. A few months later, the FBI and the DEA knocked on his door to serve him four felonies and a misdemeanor, and that wasn't even the worst of it. The fraudulent doctor who prescribed Jason the Oxycontin was at the center of the largest Oxycontin ring in history. And after it was gone, hundreds of addicts had nowhere else to go. So where did they end up? Well, they ended up heading to the black market where prices skyrocketed, ultimately leading to Jason draining his bank account. Eventually, Jason moved on to heroin, which was a cheaper, more available alternative. Now, Jason tried to control his drug use for nearly 10 years, attempting five different treatment programs and failing. He was taught what addiction was where it could lead, and why it was destructive to him, but something was missing. Finally, following the program he now shares with others through Brickhouse Recovery, Jason and his family learned how to put the disease into remission one day at a time. Now, clean and sober for many years, Jason passes on his approach to his clients and their families. Here's the reality. We all get to decide whether what we've been given is a gift or not. We all get to control the narrative of our own life and how we share it with others. And we can choose to use our stories, to use our adversities, to use our setbacks, to use our victories, our failures. We can use all of that to make a huge and positive impact in the lives of others. Now bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Jason Coombs, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, man, man. I am so happy that we finally lined this up and don't have construction uh, going on and interrupting the awesomeness from happening. Hey, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We've been working on setting this 
interview up for, uh, well, I guess it's almost been five months now, four or five months. Yeah, yeah it's January, been a while. Right? Yeah, yeah, since, since January. You know, the mission of my show, like when I, when I think about like a listener tuning in, I imagine like myself and each guest reaching out of their phone and into their chest and pulling out their beating heart and squeezing out potential or if that's what's needed or providing some sort of healing. But more importantly, giving them the ability to believe that they are capable of living into and accomplishing great things, the great things that they've been created to do in and the impact that they're capable of having in the world. And your story is profound. Your story is, a, is one that I think will reach out and touch people in a way that uh, will remind them of who they are and what they're capable of doing. And Lisa and I were honored to meet you at Kevin Hall's Genshai Retreat and hear your story. And it was incredibly touching. So I, I can't wait to share the magic of your story with my audience. Thank you. Yeah. So before we get into the origin story and your family and all that stuff, I'm, I'm going to, I don't typically do this, but I'm going to ask you a, a question before we get into the origin story. And that is because I know that you're an adventurous person. You've got this picture of somebody doing an aerial flip behind you. You just did a triathlon or an Ironman or something. So I want to know, how has adventure, the spirit of adventure, helped you discover what you're capable of and maybe even your purpose? Yeah, I, the, the picture behind me is, uh, is something that helps me remember throughout each and every day in the heavy work that I do, which is in the addiction recovery treatment industry, that there, there's balance that needs to be in place at all times. And skiing is my passion. I've been skiing since God, I was probably three or four years old when my parents started me up on the bunny slopes. So yeah, adventure. Uh, I, I used to pride myself growing up as a adrenaline junkie. And I guess to a degree, I still am, but, uh, Less of the spikes of adrenaline. I mean, I'll, I love to go skydiving and whatnot. But these days, now that I'm old, I get <laughs> you know, I don't know how many, how many people cross into their 40s and they start to suffer from motion sickness with <laughs> adrenaline. So, but yeah, yeah, skiing is, is big. And the triathlon, or it's an Ironman 70.3, that's coming up in August. So I'm really uh, doing a lot of training for that. So it, uh, to answer your question, I personally know myself well enough that if I don't have a goal, something that's pushing me and motivating me to get out of bed and to exercise, then I really slip back into laziness. And it's not laziness that is the plague for me. It's what comes with that, hmm. which is a lot of self-worth issues. And it, there are a lot of um, anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. that come with that. And so I, I just know myself well enough that I got to set the bar high to keep growing and keep stretching myself and to keep, you know, uh, challenging my fears every day. And uh, hence the Ironman, I've never even done an Olympic size triathlon. So I 
I'm setting the goal <laughs> really <laughs> high. And my, my goal is not to compete, but to simply not get injured and to cross the finish line. And I don't care if it's 10 hours that mm-hmm. it takes me, but I'm going mm-hmm. to crawl across that finish line. So yeah. I love that. I love that. I think that setting mentally challenging, physically and mentally challenging goals is really important to proving to ourselves what we're capable of because we are capable of doing so much more than we can possibly think or imagine. I'm going to go back to you, the Jason Coombs as a kid. You know, It seems to me that you had the, the quote, picture perfect life. You had a great mom and dad. I think your dad was a successful pediatrician in your town you know, white picket fence. What was it like growing up in the Coombs family as a kid? Oh, it was, it was great. My parents, uh, extremely loving, you know, they had extremely loving parents. My grandparents, both sets were powerful individuals in their own right and influencers. And so my parents, uh, you know, learned how to be incredible individuals and, and they, uh, they loved us. They were a part of, you know, my upbringing, my dad never missed a soccer game of mine. And he would, you know, he would root me on from the sidelines. And my mom was very involved and, and, uh, very loving and still is both of them still are. So the upbringing, you know, on the outside was, um, was beautiful. It was the internal storms that were going on underneath the surface that really uh manifested Hmm. what do you mean what do you mean by that uh well simply put it i i just never felt comfortable in my own skin Hmm. i don't know why describe what that felt like because there's a there's like an expectation right that 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 somebody has of you that and that's making you feel uncomfortable because that's not so describe that kind of conflict what so people can get kind of an understanding. Yeah. And, you know, Mike, I have, I have done a lot of uh, pondering and self-searching to identify and pinpoint what that is. And uh, I think the closest I can get is that to describe what, what that's like is I just wake up every morning with anxiety. And I don't know why that is. It's just some, it's a condition that I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so starting every day off wanting to just lay in bed and not face the world because of that anxiety, uh, you know, the typical day growing up was my mom coming into my room two, three times trying to get me out of bed, pulling off the cover saying, come on, the bus is going to leave you. <laughs> <laughs> And waiting until the very last minute until I would begrudgingly get out of bed, roll out of bed and, you know, hurry, brush my teeth, shower, do, do the whole thing and, and then run to the bus. And sure enough, like every single day, the bus was nearly closing its doors and they would wait for me to jump on. Hmm. And my, so every single day started off like I was playing catch up and I was not really like in control of my life. I was more being pulled or forced through life. School was um, more of a environment where I felt a lot of comparison Mm -hmm. in myself, always looking at the other kids and 
um, wanting to rise up the pecking order that didn't exist that I created in my own mind that I needed to be like so-and-so in this way, or I needed to be like so-and-so. And then I needed that girlfriend and uh, no one taught me those things. No one said, this is how it is. It just was the way I was. And so plagued with insecurity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. plagued with uh, inadequacy. Mm. And although I did fairly well with my grades and um, I was a fairly decent athlete. I always compared myself to my older siblings as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have a highly successful family. My o- older brother is a phenomenal ophthalmologist now. And growing up, he was the 4.0, you know, straight A's. He was captain of the basketball team in high school and just the hero in our family. And I always looked up to him except for when he would tease me and pick on me. (laughs) But these days I get to give him payback. Um, And my sister's was gorgeous. I mean, one of those drop dead gorgeous uh, young women that would walk the halls and everybody wanted to know her. And she just had a brightness and a light about her. And she was very friendly and, and happy. uh, At least from my perspective. And um, so I was known as her little brother. Mm-hmm. You know, I was never known as Jason Coombs. I was known as, oh, you're Melissa Coombs' little brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I was instantly, you know, recognized as that. So I, I just never really found my own identity. And, and then I have a little brother who is uh, an incredibly successful entrepreneur and, um, you know, built chains of orthodontic practices in multiple states and is you know, sold and he's doing higher level things now. So he was always on point with his grades and, and, uh, phenomenal athlete. In fact, he's the one that, you know, coaxed me into this Ironman. He said, dude, dude, all you have to do is just train a few weeks before and you'll be fine. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But uh, that's the kind of guy he is. He can just pull it together a few weeks before and, and complete an Ironman. You know, that's just how he is. So, yeah, you know, not to go incredibly long on that, but I was always looking either ahead or behind comparing myself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to others. And as we know, comparison is the thief of all joy, right? Right. Totally. Who was the first person? So you had this battle of insecurity and not feeling worthy or that you're living up to some invisible standard. But who was the first person that spoke to you and and said, Jason Coombs is capable of X. Mentors along the way that, that uh, coached me along. And then I would go through periods where I did have some confidence. Mm -hmm. I remember soccer coaches or basketball coaches or teachers or youth leaders in my church or uh, whatever. I I would get these little boons, so to speak, where, Mm -hmm. where I felt a little empowered and my confidence would, would grow. And at the same time, my confidence would grow. My ego would grow because I still had those underlying uh, insecurities and Mm -hmm. there's nothing more powerful of a drug than a a, a false sense of security and Mm -hmm. pride. And that manifests in the ego. And so I, I developed a very thick, strong ego, um, a really big ego. To the point where 
that's who I thought I was all along. And, and then I convinced myself I was untouchable. And, you know, mm. that's when, that's when the trouble started to happen. I thought I was above the law. So I would take things from stores that I wanted. And I thought that I could break curfew or sneak out at night and that rules didn't apply to me and school rules didn't apply to me. And, you know, I started getting in fights in high school and just little things that uh, were all ego driven and manifestations of a guy who deep down didn't really believe in himself. Yeah. And, and that ego, like, you know, it's a double-edged sword because it ultimately led you to being very successful in your first career, right? In sales. And you had it, you know, you had the, the, again, you had the quote unquote, seemingly on the X on the outside, the picture perfect life, a really successful career, a, a family and, and then kind of everything changed. So why don't you kind of bring us forward a little bit in time to this the successful career that you had and then the impact moment literally that altered the trajectory. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. That, you know, essentially I got an opportunity to work in the television business as a cameraman. And then I was promoted to um, the sales department. And then I got hired on at uh, the largest uh, NBC affiliate in um, Utah. So I was working for uh, that television station and out of the gates. Yeah. Ambition really was my drive. That was my fuel. And I, uh, I got addicted to accolades and recognition. And, and so I was set out to be the best and uh, started to receive some recognition in that category as top new business sales person. Um, I was the uh, youngest salesperson to ever be hired at this particular TV station um, in that role. And so I, you know, that ego just continued to grow. And I married an incredible, incredibly uh, wonderful person. We bought a house and traveled to Europe. And so, yeah, on the outside, it was, it was looking pretty good and pretty promising. You know, throughout those those college years and throughout the post-college years, um, drinking was a part of the scene here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but where it all changed, the impact that you talk about was um, after a car accident in 2003, I uh, showed up at work and one of my coworkers uh, asked me if I was seeing anyone for my pain management. And, um, you know, I said, no, I, I wasn't. And I had suffered a little bit of a whiplash, nothing too serious, but I did have some back pain that I wasn't really treating. And he offered to help me get into a pain management clinic that would, you know, basically change the game for me. And, you know, at that very moment, we were at lunch at the time, at that very moment, he uh, pulled out a, like a Costco sized bottle of pain pills and they were, the most potent pain pills on the market at the time, which is Oxycontin, um, 80 milligram pills. And he offered me a couple. I said, you need some of these to tie you over? And, you know, I've, I've never been one to say, back then I was never one to say, no, I'm good. I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds good. 
you know, it seemed, seemed like a, a normal thing to do if you're in pain. And, and I knew that these were really potent. I'm no stranger to pain pills. I blew out my knee in soccer in high school. And so I had a little run with uh, Percocet back then. And uh, some of my early addictive behaviors flared up back then, but then they went away after I got better. But, but this particular situation with my coworker was different because I had like those two voices going on inside where one was saying, run like hell. And the other one was saying, but you have a legitimate injury. You could go see this doctor. And, and the offer was go see this doctor and get your own prescription. You know, Costco-sized bottle of Oxycontin 80s. And that was pretty appealing. So there was the fork in the road, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened was he offered me those pills. And then he proceeded to pull out a dollar bill and he began crushing the pill inside the folded dollar bill with two pennies. And then he dumped out the powder on an old CD case. If you remember CDs back in the day (laughs) and, and crushed it up into a fine powder and he drew up two lines and he snorted one and then offered me the other one. And in my moment of contemplation, he said the words, Hey, this is going to be better for your stomach lining because this stuff is uh, pretty harsh and, uh, and it'll hit you faster. So how do you argue with that when you're in a moment of weakness, right? And so I went ahead and snorted my first line of Oxycontin. And it was in that euphoria where I'd never felt anything like that before. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience. I don't know... Um, really how to put it into words. And I don't want to glorify it either. So I'm careful with my words because it was, it was almost like at that moment, I lost control of what reality is. And be, I made a decision in that state where I, you know, I essentially became a puppet. I went and saw this doctor. Long story short, that doctor prescribed me the same amount that he was prescribing my coworker. And um, I returned to that doctor over the course of five months until the day his office was raided and the DEA and FBI and insurance fraud division all came together and uh, showed up at my door and served me four felonies and a misdemeanor. And that wasn't the worst of it. Let's pause there. Uh, let's pause there because I, I want to I talk about that and I want to talk about the worst of it too. But I want to go back for a moment. Because you didn't even like this guy. You didn't even like your co- your coworker. I think that it's not something I want to miss because I think it's a it's an interesting lesson in in hindsight, you know, about ego and the and the dangers of ego. And and this guy was a new employee, right? That was kind of threatening your territory, if you will, if I recall correctly. Yes, you do recall correctly. He was one of those guys that was so likable that I didn't like him. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt like he was a threat, but I couldn't help but to want to be around him. It was, it was that uh, that mix, and I and I kind of felt like he was going to outshine me, and that was really the the feeling of dislike. Was I? I felt threatened, and. But he was so good and so he had that silver tongue and just knew exactly what to say where I began to trust him. And, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, wow, that's, 
that's where everything changed for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you've you've gotten you've now been caught up in the largest oxycotton ring in history, and the feds show up at your doorstep and you're mowing the lawn, if I recall correctly. That's correct. <laughs> so yes. so what the heck, man? Like what what is going through your mind? So what was going through my mind? Well, keep in mind that snorting Oxycontin for five months, every single day, all day, really emaciated my body and my brain. I think I lost 35 pounds. My family started to get worried. They they were asking me, you know, you're so skinny. Are you okay? And I said, oh yeah, I'm just training for ski season, you know, and that kind of thing. The other manifestations of my addiction were, you know, showing up. But not to get into all of that, really, I was blindsided when I learned that this doctor that I was seeing, which by the way, at this point, I did know that it was a fraudulent organization. I was only blindsided because I, I got caught. I didn't think I would get caught or in trouble. I thought if anyone's getting in trouble, it's the doctor, which is true also. But uh, they had been watching this pain management clinic. The FBI had, had cameras in the ceiling and on the building. And they were watching this operation for a period of time to build up enough evidence to bring this this drug ring down. And so how it worked, uh, do you want me to tell you how that worked? Yeah, let's let's, let's roll. Yeah, do it. I think it's interesting to note because these, these organizations are everywhere in every city and in small towns throughout the country, throughout the world. And um, luckily, a lot of them are being shut down. Uh, Thank goodness. But uh, when you uh, show up to this doctor's office the very first time, they give you some instructions and you, you are to fill out the paperwork exactly the way they instruct you to do. And I sat down in the lobby and I began to fill out the typical paperwork following the instructions. And really what I did was in the paperwork, describe symptoms that um, someone with a herniated disc would have. Hmm. And so the paperwork was all fabricated to justify medical necessity to prescribe the Oxycontin. And then, uh, you, you know, you'd go back into the doctor's office once the paperwork was done and he would do a perfunctory, you know, 30 second physical, which was all just BS. And then you'd sit down at his desk and he would slide over a piece of paper, which was a prescription. And then he would uh, give instructions on where to go fill the prescription. And then this was the kicker. The next set of instructions were, when you fill your bottle, make sure that you give 20 of those pills to your coworker as his referral fee, essentially. And so it was sort of like this profit sharing. It was almost like a multi-level marketing setup. When you look at the organization chart of this particular drug ring, which the insurance fraud division published on Google and 
and uh, my habit. And I use it when I speak. But you look at it and it's very much set up like a multi-level marketing uh, company. And all of the individuals involved were recruiting others who had good insurance policies. So then you go to the pharmacy, you follow the instructions and you walk out with, oh, you use your insurance to buy the the prescription and then you go on your way. And, you know, there were about 75,000 pills prescribed in one year from this one doctor's office. And there were over 250 patients seeing this doctor for the same thing. And then when you would return to get your refill, you had to pay $1,200 cash under the table to the doctor directly. Mm. And so he was double dipping, getting cash, getting insurance kickback. And, uh, and then he would also get a large amount of Oxycontin rolled back up to him through his recruiters. So it was very dirty. And this was back in 2004, 2005 timeframe. So, yeah. So, so just to, just the ending of this story, what was I thinking? What was I feeling by the time I still remember being out in my uh, front yard, mowing my lawn, listening to a little red hot chili peppers, the sun was shining on my back and, and uh, an unmarked vehicle pulled up agent got out He had a gun on his hip and a badge, and he walked straight up to me. I turned off the lawnmower, and he handed me a manila envelope. And that is where he said, I recommend you get an attorney. Have a nice day. And uh, he walked off. And I looked inside there, and there were, were four felonies and a misdemeanor that I was being charged with. Everything from insurance fraud to doctor shopping to obtaining false prescriptions, distribution. I mean, you, you name it. And I, was, I was being charged. It, it, I added it up, and I was looking at like 75 to 90 years in the state penitentiary if everything was running consecutive. And so that was your come to Jesus moment. And you turned around and everything was hunky-dory after that, right? Yeah. And here I am. No, (laughs) that's not at all where where the story ends. In fact, it got darker. Yeah, it sure did. You know, what what does 250 individuals who are addicted to Oxycontin do once their supplier is shut down? They go to the, the street. Yeah. Then the black market just started booming. And I mean, you had legitimate patients with leukemia and cancer who were prescribed Oxycontin and they were selling their prescriptions to the black market for a hundred, two hundred dollars a pill. Mm. And so I decided that draining my 401k and cashing in all of my, you know, my savings and everything that I had built up in order to feed my addiction. And uh, once all of that was depleted, I had to go to heroin. And uh, it was much cheaper and much, you know, much easier to get. And that's where things got worse. Mm-hmm. Was was going to the streets and the street drugs and yeah, it got bad, man. 
How did your relationship with your family change throughout this ordeal? You know, I drug them through the mud, the lies and the deceit and the tears and the manipulation in order for them to, you know, to, to get money from them or to get them to pay my mortgage or, you know, my dad helping me pay off my payday loans because I would go and I would do whatever I could with pawn shops and just the whole game that mm-hmm. you get into when you're so desperate, you know, stealing things and taking them to pawn shops. And my ex-wife gave me a period of time to change. She really did not want to divorce me at that time. And, but she also said that if things don't change, I can't stay married to you. Like, this is just, I just can't do this. Because I was pawning her wedding rings and her heirlooms and, you know, my guitar. Everything was just going out the door. And so she, uh, oh, and I drained our, our accounts. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have any money left either. And so she ended up divorcing me, which was the best thing she should have done. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful she did to protect herself. And uh, my siblings were all in their medical schools and residencies throughout the country. So they were pretty removed from the situation. And then my parents took the brunt of it. And, uh, and yeah, that drug them through the mud. But they were the very ones who started to get help before I started getting help. And that's what changed everything. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. Yeah, there were two things that you said that whomever was, was counseling them said that they had to, number one, get off the beach, and number two, put on an emotional raincoat. I'd love if you could describe that a little bit further and maybe even talk about the moment where they locked you out. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Holy moly. Where to begin? (laughs) When I finally got busted and... You know, the, the feds caught up with me and I was locked up. Then, then I was court ordered to a treatment program. And I just say that because that set the stage to what was about to happen for my parents. And so while I was put away in a residential court order treatment program, which was more like jail with couches, I was at the same time watching my parents show up every week and they would go to the family group. And I wasn't invited to that. And they were in there learning from a therapist how to set boundaries and how to protect themselves and how to love the right way. And I'll never forget my mom sharing this message with me where she said that the counselor taught them about getting off the beach. And she said that, uh, 
it was like, imagine you were addicted loved one out in the middle of the ocean, dropping a pebble with each bad decision that they make. And those ripples, by the time they arrive to the beach, are massive tsunamis. And it was as if my parents were simply standing on the beach, taking the tsunamis one after another, after another, after another, calling to me to stop, to change, to get better. And I was just out there dropping those pebbles day after day. And the advice of their therapist was, get off the beach. You don't have to stand there. (laughs) And I found that to be really, really hurtful at the time. But boy, how true. Mm -hmm. How true that was. And my parents began to ask questions like, how? How do you get off the beach? And so the next suggestion was, well, okay, if Jason has access to coming into your home, has your, your pin to get in through the security system, has a key, and he can come and go, well, the first thing you need to do are, is change your locks on your house. And this, this therapist started to teach about physical boundaries before the emotional boundaries. And I'll get to that with the emotional raincoat. But the physical boundaries were that out of the gate, I was no longer welcome in their home unless I was invited by them. So that was the first change. So they changed all their locks and they changed their code to their security. And the other condition was when I was invited into their home that I was only allowed in the common areas when they were there. So I was not allowed to go into bedrooms or into private quarters or into offices. I, was, that, I wasn't welcome to roam the house, the very house I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was now like a visitor. And uh, they made that very clear that I was, um, I was a visitor or a guest in their home. And the reason why all of these things is I stole so much from them. I stole money. I stole my dad's rare coin collection and sold it. And, you know, I damaged their computers and all sorts of stuff. So this boundary was big for them and they were really scared to do it. They didn't know how to do it. And I reacted poorly. I felt like they were picking on me and they weren't loving me. And, you know, I used the whole sick, addicted person's mindset to manipulate them to get what I wanted. But they held strong Mm -hmm. to the point where one day I was so desperate for some money. I needed my fix. And um, I found a ride up to my parents' house and um, nobody was there. But then when I looked, because I was knocking on the door, nobody would answer. And so I decided to go around back, see if there was a window open. And I noticed that through the window in the garage, my dad's car was there. So he had to be home. So I went up to his uh, bedroom window and knocked on it around back. And um, he opened up the blinds and I could tell that he was not happy to see me. Um, My dad got pretty resentful and angry because I depleted a lot of his resources and lied to him for so long. 
So he came around to the the sliding glass door in the kitchen and opened it up. And I was prepared with the story to get $100 so that I could pay off my dealers or else they were going to kill me. And this is what my dad said. This was a game changer. He said, son, you will never see another dime out of your mother or me. I hope they don't hurt you too badly. Now get off my property. And he closed the door. I can't even imagine how many pieces his heart must have broken into at that moment. Yeah. Especially now, you being a father, you know, like imagining, relating to that, like just how painful that must have been for him. Yeah, extremely, extremely painful. But then from that moment, you're, you're locked out and you, you head back to the street. But then what was the, the moment that gave your life meaning again? Well, that's, a, that's a big bridge because the, the thing was, is there were, there were a series of interventions that helped move me to wanting to change. Mm-hmm. But nothing was as impactful as first setting the stage by allowing natural consequences from my parents and from my ex-wife. So they, they did the hard work, which was they finally put up strong fences. And we know that strong fences make great neighbors. And they put on their emotional raincoats, which was they were not going to take my crap anymore. And If I died, they were going to protect their emotions from my addiction. And they they got into a space of surrender. And so they they really did the work with the boundaries and with the, you know, the emotional raincoats. And that set the stage for natural consequences to continue to hit me in the face and punch me in the nose. And, you know, I kept falling and, and it was painful and painful. And Every single experience that I walked through really evoked internal motivation. Whereas back when I was making good money and things were fine, I didn't really have any motivation to change. Why would I? Mm-hmm. But now I'm homeless and now I'm divorced and now my parents won't let me around. Now my siblings won't talk to me. Now my all my friends that I used to hang out with don't want anything to do with me because you know I'm not fun anymore. And it's just me and my addiction. And it's lonely and it's miserable. And you know what? The miracle that changed everything was when I discovered that I was going to be a father. Hmm. And Leading up to that, I had no purpose in life. And then I discovered that I was that that I was going to be a father and I was in no condition to raise this child. But when he came into the world, something changed within me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to I wanted for myself to do what it took to be a good example to him. And I remember making promises to him that first night that he was born that I would change and I would become someone that he would be proud of. 
not because the courts wanted me to, not because my parents were telling me to, not because my marriage was on the line, not because of all these external consequences, but because I just didn't want him to grow up thinking his dad was a bum, a junkie. I really wanted to be there for him somehow, some way. And, and I knew that we were placing him for adoption mm-hmm. and that I wouldn't be raising him, but I wanted him to know that his birth father turned his life around and loved him and wasn't giving him up because I didn't love him, but it was because I, my life was unmanageable and I was powerless over drugs and alcohol. Mm. And how quickly from that moment did things begin to turn for you? You know, it took a little time um, for it all to kind of sink in and to change. I, I did not stay sober from that moment on, even though I promised my son, Nathan, I would. It took another two years of sobriety, then relapse and sobriety and relapse before I got to that, that real deep down surrender where it was, it was just going to be death or I was going to put my heart and soul into recovery. Mm, mm. It was in my fifth treatment center where that shift happened. Mm, Let's stay there. What, tell us a little bit more about that turning point right there where you're in the thick of it. And it's, it's, it's a binary decision. It's, it's either you're in or you're done. Yeah. So uh, right before I decided to go into treatment, and this was in March of 2009. And I had been through many treatment centers and I had already been through jail seven times, you know, spent the majority of 2006 in jail, incarcerated and been on the streets. So I was, I was pretty hardened at this point and not, not very many things scared me. I was welcoming death. If anyone on that's listening can understand what that's, that feels like, you know, I, I understand why people take their own lives. I understand that. And uh, I don't judge people for that because it does get so dark that um, just taking a dirt nap sounds like the best thing in the world. Um, And leading into that final decision to go into get help one last time, a series of events happened as if, as if God, which I'm a believer, you know, as if God was just lining it up. Mm -hmm. The first thing was that my, my dealer's house was raided. And I learned that no longer could I go, you know, score from him. So I went to my second dealer. And when I knocked on that dealer's house, um, the FBI was there. They opened the door and pulled me inside, <laughs> slammed me up against the wall and, and um, asked me why, what I was doing there. And they knew what I was doing there. But a lot of things happened where I got out of there and didn't go to prison. I didn't get any charges. Like it was almost as if I was being protected through that whole period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I overdosed, but I didn't die. And I was launched headlong into a drug-induced psychosis where I barricaded myself in my apartment for two weeks and didn't eat, didn't sleep. And I was um, hallucinating and completely in a psychosis. Um, And I was delivered from that. And I got some help from my best friend, Dave Pinnegar, who came down from Idaho and 
got me into the hospital and got me committed. And I was able to um, get some help that were outside of my control, right? And so leading up to this experience in treatment, I couldn't deny that there was a power working, a higher power working on my behalf that for some reason I needed to be spared. And that that uh, experience in treatment was really a journey of unpacking all of my beliefs about spirituality and about my worth and about you know my life and putting it all out on the table and looking at it with different eyes and just looking at it in a way that I was able to say, you know what, this stuff doesn't serve me. This this stuff does serve me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to repack this in a way that's going to serve me going forward. So I I literally left a lot of my uh, false beliefs and a lot of my issues and shame with in regards to spirituality in regards to self-love in regards to mankind and my relationship with mankind and uh, I left a lot of that and I began to start fresh with a new perspective and experiment with something different which was just I only wanted to fill my life with positivity so I cut out all the negativity and and through the process of the 12 steps that's the idea is you it's like you have a garbage can it's like I'm a garbage can and and the process of dumping out all the garbage and then cleaning the can and then going after it again you know that is kind of what the the 12 steps do it's like mm-hmm. drilling the tooth to get out the cavity before you fill it and I couldn't be filled with any love and light because I was filled with poison and hatred and and uh, suffering. And so I had to go through that self-overhaul through the process of the 12 steps and purge a lot of things, beliefs, and a lot of, uh, you know, do some confessions and begin the process of making amends before I could fill my cup mm-hmm. with love and light. And it wasn't a hard process. It was just stripping away the ego enough and being desperate enough to allow that process to kind of unfold. It's not like I had to go after it. It's not like training for an Ironman. It's like, it's almost like unlearning, mm-hmm. stripping away of attachments and challenging my beliefs about things and like letting go of a lot of that stuff. You know, as we, when we were talking on the phone uh, before the, we hit record on the interview, I was talking about the first key in the journey to unlock potential and, and that being owning, taking ownership of your story. And I think that that's one, that is the number one thing. That's the first thing that people need to do in order to really begin the journey of, of discovering what they're fully capable of achieving. And yet no one, 
I mean, most people, I don't know what the, you, you probably know the statistics, but I, I, I don't, I don't know the number of people that go through addiction and, and, and at any level, let alone the level that you did. But I think that, I think that what most people have in common is that we're addicted to holding on to our problems and not laying everything out on the table and, and shining light on things and saying, you know what? I, I need to let go of this so that I can embrace this, you know, and we don't take the time to do that. And you did, you, you did because you, it was a life or death scenario and you literally, in order to move forward, you had to build that bridge and you had to put all of the, the stuff on the table. So how could someone who hasn't necessarily gone through, uh, uh, the, the, journey of addiction that you've gone through or that many people battle with, but has, has made mistakes. Maybe they've made mistakes from relationships. Maybe they've made financial decisions that have really set them back, but, but they use those and, and are holding onto those. And, and even though they know that they're not serving them, but that's some sort of like comfort blanket, if you will, how can people use your experience and what you've been through and shed that so that they can step more fully into who they're created to be? Wow. That's, that's such a wonderful question and such a loaded question too, because as you and I know, there is no simple response to, to that, but there is a simple starting point. As, as we know, it's going to take Small things, small actions consistently over a period of time for self-overhaul, right? Mm-hmm. And the start, the, you know, starting wherever you're at is, is crucial. Well, you know, we don't have to go as far and as deep as other people we've seen turn their life around. Mm-hmm. We can start right where we're at. And one of one of the basics, and I shared this as uh, I was the MC for Idaho's conference on drug and alcohol dependency over the last three days. And um, yesterday morning, I would, uh, gave a little bit of a introduction to the keynote speaker. But before I did, I, I shared because for three days, you know, in, in my industry, we're talking about the rates of growth and the epidemic and what we're seeing in terms of lives lost and families that are being shredded apart and the, the issues with the juvenile corrections and, you know, our youth, what our youth are up against. And it, all of us, including me, felt really overwhelmed with discouragement and hopelessness. And God, you know, we talk so much about the problem. We talk, you know, that and and what we're up against kind of feels like we're at the base of Mount Mount Everest wearing flip-flops and Tiva and, and a canteen, right? <laughs> and the message that I shared yesterday is the message that I share again today. And it is that what we focus on expands. And the more we focus on our past and our problems and our uh, shortcomings and 
our failures and our inadequacies and our insecurities and our fears or our egos and our false sense of security and our false sense of happiness and our greed and our financial gains and our position, you know, the more we focus on those things, those expand. And not, and it's not always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yet, if we can focus on the simple things today, or, you know, focusing on being an honest person, a little more honest than we were yesterday, mm-hmm. a little more considerate to others than we were yesterday, a little more sincere and loving to our spouses or our partners or our children or, our parents making that extra call and just saying, Hey, I just want to thank you for being one of my biggest supporters in my life. And I love you. And we start to focus on light and love and focus on what we could become as an individual internally, not the external. I think a lot of times we focus on what I, what can I become in status financially, what, you know, my bank account, my house Mm -hmm. or how many houses I have, like as if that's an accurate measure Mm -hmm. of how we're doing Mm -hmm. this internal check and just beginning to reach out and help others and share our stories that, you know, the, the topic of this whole conversation is owning our stories and using our stories to empower others, we all have something inside us that we've experienced in our past that can help another one either avoid that same challenge or help them walk through that same challenge and use it as a lesson. And to own that story and to share that story with the world or just with one person today or one person tomorrow. That's what makes that internal change. And what's cool about all that is that through the internal change, all of the external falls into place. Like I've never been more secure in my life from an external standpoint than I, than I am today. Mm. But it didn't, I didn't proceed with, or that stuff didn't proceed the internal work. It was, it's always the internal work that has to straighten out mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and cleanse and revamp before you start to see the fruits of what being a good person and an honest person and a transparent person and a healthy person can manifest from the external standpoint. Yeah, no, that was just, dude, I mean, I was just, it's so powerful. I mean, 100%, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's our decision to, to, decide we get to decide whether what we've been given is a gift or not and we get to turn things into a gift we get to control the narrative of of our life to a certain degree you know and how we respond to things the power of choice and i think far too often and you just mentioned it a moment ago that people get so concerned with status right they get so concerned with their gifts how their gifts can increase their status, but gifts are not meant for for us. They're meant to be given away, right? They're meant to be 
um, shared with others. And so when you let go of status, you free yourself to create in a way that that it is impossible otherwise. And part of that too is is surrounding yourself with the the right community of people that believe in the, the same way that that hold you to a standard that you know and they know you're capable of that are going to call you out and hold you accountable so that you are aware and and I'd love to learn about how you've gone about building that tribe around you to not only hold you accountable, but to help remind you of what you're capable of doing. And also how you've built strong fences around that to prevent some of those old people from entering. Oh, yeah. You know, the, one of the very first lessons I learned in early recovery and treatment, which I kind of actually deem treatment as discovery and recovery happens after treatment. And, and they say, stick with the winners. And I never really understood what that meant, but you know, the, sticking with the winners is an interesting concept because you know that kind of changes too. Where uh, you know I, I can surround myself with a group of people, and over the course of you know time, six months, twelve months, it's interesting how some people will revert back into being non-winners just in terms of their lifestyle. And, you know, they, they kind of slip back into, you know, in my world, they slip back into their addictions or they slip back into other addictions. And, uh, it's hard to, for me to continue to grow personally, if I'm surrounding myself with people who are not committed to grow. But that said, it's that fine balance of, like you, you brought up, boundaries. And I, I think that there are categories of winners because although uh, some of my dear friends have slipped back into their addictions and some of them aren't even alive today, it's still my responsibility to love them and treat them like the winners that they are, but they're just going through a struggle and then reaching back and guiding them out, you know, because as Kevin Hall would say, you know, they rise highest to lift as they go. And so I, I think it's always important to help people and guide people out of the struggle. That's what I do for a living. That's what I do uh, in my altruism. And I, that's where I find a lot of happiness. But my inner circle, like my personal board of directors, if you will, Mm -hmm. over my life, those people are proven sustainable winners that I can go to and rely on. And they are my sounding boards and they're committed to growing themselves. So we're all growing together. And that's really, really important to um, surround yourself with, you know, four or five stellar individuals who are going to invest in you and that you can invest in them. And that's been um, a beautiful journey for me to really mm. like identify who those winners are. Mm. And some of them I don't see every day. Some of them I don't talk to every day, but, and some of them live in another state, but they are in my inner sanctum, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. to speak. 
I love it, man. Dude, this has been such an incredible conversation. And I think that your story is so powerful because it reminds us that that if we make the decision, if we make the choice to take ownership of our story, we can take what was once a lump of coal and turn it into a precious diamond that can be that can share light and uh, permeate throughout the world. And as as we wrap up, I have some questions that I ask of every single guest. And before I do that, um, I want you to think about a call to action. I'm doing something new, a call to action that you would have people, listeners, take an action to take after they are finished listening to our conversation. That, that relates back to some of the elements that we've talked about, ownership of story, reconciliation with family and friends, building community, any, any call to action about around one of those areas. I want you to think about that. But the first question is, if you could take any skill set that you currently possess, and it could be any skill set that you already have, and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? And it doesn't have to necessarily relate to what you do day to day. It could be, you know, skiing if you want, but uh, just the skill set that you already possess. Communication to effectively communicate what I mean and what I uh, the listener needs to hear mm-hmm. to turn that into a superpower where I could nail it every time. That yeah. would bring me a lot of joy because I, I, I think communication is you know, the, the connection between people and that's a verbal and nonverbal communication. Yes. Yeah. I love that, man. That's so powerful. So powerful because it would accelerate things so quickly too. recovery, discovery, relationship building, trust, all of that stuff. If you can communicate exactly what the person needs to hear. Uh, So powerful. The next question is what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? Oh, I think, boy, just shooting from the hip here, I think the biggest one is, you know, I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, so the lie that, um, and, and I think that another lie that we tell ourselves is, oh, I could never do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not cut out for that. Mm-hmm. Like when I was, when I was early, in sobriety, I um, gained 90 pounds and I thought running a 5k, I could never do that. I remember saying that I could never do that. And I was wow. pushing 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously I can do that. And that was a lie that held me back for a long time. Mm. Another lie is, oh, I don't have anything to share. Nobody's going to care about what I have to say. Oh, that's a powerful lie. I think that one of the other missions of my show is to is to is to get people to really address that particular lie, and that they don't have to wait for a life or death moment to realize what they're capable of giving to the world. They can decide to break away from the average now, without having to. I'm reading this book about this this guy named John O'Leary who basically was caught up in a firebomb in his parents' garage when he was nine and 100% of his body was burned and 87% of it was third-degree burns. And, you know, and, and 
And he's got a really powerful story to share. But what he is telling people now is that they don't have to wait to be blown up to live a life on fire. <clears throat> you know? And like you said earlier, dude, we all have experiences that can help other people, big or small. And it's just about giving it away. You know, it's not about holding on to it and waiting for some opportunities. It's about giving um, freely you know, and helping others dream and helping others realize what they're possible and possible of achieving and speaking truth to their uh, abilities. You know, the last question is, you know, have you ever been to like a museum like the Louvre in France or, or any museum that's got like, like world-class sculptures in it? Yes. So this question is kind of a derivative of a, of a question I've been asking and I'm, I'm kind of riffing on it to kind of freshen it up a little bit. The question I used to ask is how will you measure your life? But then I was watching this documentary about the Louvre and I thought I, I saw all of these statues, these monuments um, of some real historical people. And, and I thought about like, gosh, you know, some of these, these, these sculptures are hundreds of years old and they are made of people that are are thousands of years old you know in historical terms and and so those people whose monuments are sitting in the in the museums they didn't have a choice over how the sculptor decided to display them right how the sculptor decided to carve them it was their legacy that inspired the sculptor to shape this creation right so the question is how would you measure your life in two or three sculptures? If you could speak out to your, the, the, the artist that is going to build the Jason Coombs monument at some point, you know, hundreds of years from now, and it's going to reside in some prestigious museum, what kind of insight would you give him or her to help guide them on what kind of monument they should create? Oh, yeah. I bet every single guest that you've asked a question like that to feels a bit stumped and <laughs> feels a bit inadequate to describe what that would be. But, you know, I'll just tell you the image that just popped into my mind. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Yep. And the image is a version of me looking up at my creator, honoring his power mm. through my life. And whatever has happened through my life that's been of any worth or anything good or of any significance is because I was plucked out of the cesspool of addiction through divine help. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. It's not Jason Coombs that has, that has taken this and, and flipped it around. Like, I, I was just delivered. And... Every day I wake up wanting to serve him and wanting to help people find that light. Mm. And that's where real change comes. So some depiction of me honoring the very power and giving credit to the very power that has transformed me into who I am and has given me a wife and has given me my twins and has given me my um, beautiful relationship with my son, Nathan, who's now 11 and with his adoptive family and we're like really close we we see each other all the time like 
that no human power can create from mm -hmm. the wreckage that I was in. So mm -hmm. if there's a way to depict that, that's what the statue would be. Jason, dude, that was amazing. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I think that my listeners are going to feel the hand of Jason Coombs reaching into their heart and squeezing out potential and also providing some healing and reminding them that they too don't have to be burned and chained by the mistakes that of the past. We can move forward in service of others. And so thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and for impacting our audience. And I know you are having a game-changing impact in the lives of others. Oh, Mike, thank you so much. And to the listeners, thanks for listening through this. And um, yeah, God bless you and appreciate it. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.